All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at Fieldstone. We're going to jump into Peter in a second. Uh, I know Joe mentioned a few things that are going on over the next few weeks. want to throw one more quick one at you, uh, just because it is coming up quick. Easter, believe it or not, is only like four or five Sundays away. So uh, Sunday, April 9, uh, and uh, like we've done in previous years, we're going to have our normal two services, 9, 15, and 11, but we'll also have a 7.30 on that day. Uh, just got to make a little bit of space. Uh, we'll have a continental breakfast throughout the morning. Kids stuff will be at all three services. Uh, and so especially for some of you core Fieldstone people, if at all possible, if you can hit that 7.30, that would be huge for us just to kind of uh, make some space at the other two services. Um, but we'll talk more about that over the next few weeks. Also want you to know we recognize it is a little bit chilly in here this morning uh, with the power outage and stuff. We're still trying to figure out some of the stuff with the HVAC. Um, the nice thing is the units that do this room are new this past summer. Beautiful thing called warranty that is uh, going to be taking care of all of our problems here very soon. But uh, thanks for bearing with us. Just kind of breathe on those hands a little bit this morning if you need to. Uh, but today we're, we're jumping into 2 Peter. If you've been with us, we, we kind of ran all the way through 1 Peter. Uh, and it shifts gears a little bit here because in 1 Peter, as you guys know, we, uh, the emphasis was on salvation, especially at the beginning, right? This amazing thing that we celebrate, the salvation of our souls and what that means for eternity, of course but also what that means here in real life, here on this planet. Here's how we live out our salvation and grow in our salvation in the midst of a world that doesn't really get it yet, a world that doesn't, hasn't experienced all of that yet. And so in 2 Peter, he shifts gears a little bit and is saying, hey, guys, this is legit. Everything that we've been saying, we need you to be careful to guard it and protect it. Um, and he's, he's writing to, if not the same audience, a very similar audience. He references the fact that this is his second letter later on in chapter 3, but there's one thing that's really important to notice as we get into 2 Peter. It's, it's from right in the middle of the first chapter there, uh, starting in verse 12. Peter says, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them, even though you've been firmly established in the truth. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as the Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I'll make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. So if you were with us last year at this time, we were wrapping up a series called Terminal, where we looked at uh, a few chapters towards the end of the Gospel of John, where Jesus is basically kind of throwing out his last words, right? He, he's about to be arrested. He knows he's going to die on the cross. And so the tone changes, right? It comes across different than a typical parable, it comes across different than his other teachings because he's near death. And that changes someone, right? Some of you have been through that with parents or grandparents or uh, you, you've walked, even historical leaders throughout history in our country and around the world, when they see the end coming, there's some things they need to say, right? The, the tone of their voice changes. They lean in a little bit like, I need you to hear this. That was the case with Jesus towards the end of John. That's the case with Peter here where it's like, hey, I'm, I'm going out soon. There's some things I need to get off of my chest. There's some things that I need to put on record for you. And, and I think in some ways there's a little bit of concern for his legacy and the legacy of the original 11 disciples of which Peter was a part of that group. And so he's saying, hey, like, this was for real. We, we saw this. We experienced this. And we'll get into that a little bit over the next couple of weeks. But I think there's also some concern for the legacy of the gospel, right? Who's, who's going to protect these things after I'm gone, after we are gone and so today he offers an important reminder, an important challenge, and it actually reminds me of something that we've all experienced to a different degree in our, in our time in school. So I'm going to ask for a little audience participation. Uh, who wants to volunteer? No, I'm kidding. Not, nothing like that. 
just want to illustrate something this morning. Uh, I'm going to ask you to raise your hands if, right, and I'm going to be looking for our high-level overachiever students to start with. So raise your hand and keep your hand up if you took any high-level math through school. So I'm talking like trig, calculus, that kind of stuff, like high-level math. Where are my engineers at? Where are my, my valedictorians at? Okay, we got a few. I think we had a ton of engineer types in the first service. So high-level math, keep your hand up if you use any of that in your everyday life today. Oh, we lost almost all of them, okay? Paul's hanging with me, all right? If you need calc help, Paul is at the back with his hands up, ready to tutor you. Okay, uh, thank you. You can put your hands down. I want to bring in the masses now, maybe the rest of us. Raise your hand and keep your hand up if you took any type of algebra through school. Okay, now we brought a few more in. They added letters to the numbers, and some of the middle schoolers are like, they do what? Yeah, at some point they're throwing letters at you. Keep your hands up, any, kind of, any level of algebra. Now keep your hand up if you use any of the algebra in everyday life. Okay, we're, we're, we're losing almost everybody. All right, you can, keep your hand, you can put your hands down. Thank you. We've got some of you who use X's and Y's. Now if I eliminated the Pythagorean theorem, would we lose the rest of you guys? Okay, you're trying to find that hypotenuse? All right. Now, I want to bring, some of you guys aren't into math, right? Some of you guys didn't raise your hands for that one. How about some chemistry? Raise your hand and keep your hand up. Oh, she's ready. If, if you had to learn any amount of the periodic table growing up, even just like one or two things, AU is gold. Yeah, if, if that's you, <laughs> hand up some amount of periodic table. Now, keep your hand up if you use that in everyday life. Okay, man, Paul, some of us, we've got to live with the consequences of our choices. <laughs> Not only did he take the classes, but he's got to use that crap every single day. <laughs> what a horrible life you've chosen for yourself. <laughs> here, here, here's my point with that, and Paul, thanks for being a good sport, brother. He's like, that's a, now, just so you guys know, I'm giving away a secret. If you sit right under one of those can lights, you're the only ones I can see. And so, <laughs> like... If it feels like I'm making eye contact on a given Sunday morning, it's because you are under one of the lamps, and, uh, and so that's just how the way it goes. Um, so, he, so here's the thing with these classes, right? Whether you took calculus or algebra or kind of navigated your way through the, the section on the periodic tables, as long as you passed, you got credit, right? It even Now, if it never comes up in life, it's pretty much useless. Zero impact on your family, on your career, on anything around you. But in the midst of that, your transcript is secure. If anyone wanted to go look at your high school transcript, or if some of you guys did that in college, it is set. They can't change it. You were given credit for that. They cannot take it away. And yet, on the other side of that, who really cares? And so it becomes an issue of credit and security Versus calling, security versus impact, usefulness in life, usefulness for you, usefulness for others around you. This is kind of where Peter goes in this first section of Second Peter, and we're going to build up to it. We're going to take it kind of section by section, um, but as we go through this, if you find your mind wandering, like, where is he going with this? Just go, calculus, okay? We're coming back to calculus, coming back to my transcripts, right? So just kind of keep that all in mind. We're going to go to Second Peter chapter 1. Um, we're going to do those first 11 verses, but we're going to take it kind of chunk by chunk. So let's do verses 3 and 4 to kick things off. And Peter says, His, God's divine power, 
has, been given, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So the first chunk, the first thing that we need to nail down this morning is this, is that God has given us everything we need to experience spiritual growth and maturity. And that thing, that everything that we need, is his divine power. He's given us everything that we need to experience growth and maturity in our pursuit of Jesus. And that thing, that everything that we need, is his divine power. So then the question becomes, okay, what is God's divine power? What does that look like? Well, let's break that down. Because the first element of God's divine power is simply the truth of the gospel. Romans chapter 1, we're going to hit a bunch of different verses today. You can either bounce around with me or we'll have it on the screen. You can always come back to the video uh, and revisit these. But Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the truth about Jesus and who he is. He's God come in the flesh, came, entered his creation and lived a perfect sinless life and then sacrificed that perfect life on the cross, dying to defeat sin and then rising again to defeat death and offers that victory to us in his sacrifice. That is the truth of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. That means it's for everyone. For in the gospel, in this truth, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. So there is power in the truth about Jesus. There's power in the truth about the cross and about repentance and forgiveness and new life. And when you are armed with the truest truth of all time, the most powerful transforming truth of all time, what a weapon that is. What a boost of confidence that should be as we go through this life and navigate the different things that come along us. When you're armed with an intimate knowledge of that truth, when you're armed with an intimate experience with that truth, you are armed with divine power. There is truth and there is power in the gospel. That is divine power that we take with us in our pursuit of growth and maturity in our faith. There's more to it than that. God's divine power is found in Jesus himself. There is power in his name. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him, through Christ who gives me strength. Acts 4.12, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we, we preach Christ crucified. And that is a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, it's Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. When you embrace Jesus, when you make him Lord and King and Savior of your life, when you claim his name, when you call on the name of Jesus, you are given access to a divine power. You arm yourself with a divine power that can continually push you towards growth and maturity. There's a lot more that becomes accessible to us in that, but for the purposes of today, that divine power becomes part of what drives us in our pursuit of growth and maturity. So we've got power in the truth of the gospel. We've got power in the name and person of Jesus Christ. We also have God's divine power in his Holy Spirit. If you were to read through John chapter 16, it says that the Holy Spirit has the power to prove the world wrong, has the power to convict the world of sin, to call us 
to repentance and righteousness. It has the power to guide and heal and transform from the inside out. It has the power to reveal the truth to us and the power to guide us towards that truth. And it says in Romans 6 that that same power, that power of God's Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us if we claim Christ. And so with the truth of the gospel and with the power accessible in the name of Jesus and God's Holy Spirit, he's given us everything that we need to continually push towards spiritual growth and maturity. Everything that we need is accessible to us. Let's move on to the second set of verses there. Let's pick it up in verse 5. 2 Peter 1.5 For this reason, because of what's accessible to us, make every effort to add to your faith. Add to your faith goodness, and add to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge add self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. So not only do we have everything that we need in order to pursue growth and maturity, but next Peter says we need to actively pursue growth and maturity. He mentions faith and goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance, all of these different things. It's really, in many ways, Peter's take on the fruit of the Spirit that Peter hits or that Paul hits in other parts of the New Testament. Uh, but here, first thing you got to know, we're not going to worry about the order in which these things fall. All right, because some might argue, okay, you have to work on faith, and then we're going to work on goodness, and then we're going to work on knowledge, and eventually we're going to get to mutual affection and love and all these things. Now, I think they might build on each other, but I think that becomes counterintuitive when you say, okay, you can't work on perseverance and love until you've already figured out knowledge and self-control. I don't think it works that way. Right? Is, is love within the body of Christ only important after we've mastered goodness? I don't think so. So I don't think that the order itself is particularly important other than the fact that they're all kind of important and they all build on each other. But my emphasis today, I need, I need to emphasize that he says, add these things to your faith. Some of you are good church kids and you say, whoa, 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 Justin, I know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that says it's by grace alone through faith alone. We're not going to be adding things on top of faith. But Peter said it, but why did he say it? He said it because if these things, these things that he's listed, these fruits of people who are actively pursuing and growing and walking with Jesus Christ, if they're not an active part of your faith, if they're not a growing part of your faith, if they're not a staple of your faith and walk with Jesus, then you render yourself, as Peter describes, as ineffective as a believer, as unproductive in your walk, as nearsighted and blind, as someone who has forgotten what you have in Christ. And so everything that you have, is at, everything that you need is at your disposal you need to take that and actively pursue growth and maturity. And we move on to the next couple verses. And it starts to get us where we want to go this morning. Verses 10 and 11. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. We're going to come back to that phrase in a second. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ. I think he's saying that spiritual growth and maturity are vital if our faith is to have any impact 
in this life, if our faith is to have any usefulness in this life. He says, confirm your calling, confirm your election. We've got to do a little bit of work on this. Not as much as I maybe teased out a couple weeks ago. I think I made you think this was a predestination talk. Doing a little bit of that, but, but not going to be the focus of the whole thing. So the question becomes, what is calling? What is this calling that you need to confirm? We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 4. And Paul says this. He says, As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What does that look like, to live that calling? Well, be humble and gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. Make every effort to keep unity and, and maintain the bond of peace. And what is this? What, what have we been called to? Well, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's what we've been called to. And that word calling basically just means an invitation. We've been given an invitation to salvation, an invitation to everything that God offers us in his Son through the power of his Holy Spirit. That is our calling. That is our invitation. Okay, so then what is election? Well, I need to warn you, this, this word election, this idea of being part of the elect, the idea of predestination will come up. This has been a source of debate within the world of church for centuries, and it will continue to be as people try to figure out Where's where's God's heart in this? What does this all mean? What what role does he play? What role do I play, right? Do I have free will? Do I choose God or does he choose me? Is predestination really a thing in the way that we think of it here in church world? And I got to tell you, there's, there's two main views when it comes to this idea of election or predestination, okay? And when it comes to these, there's always rabbit trails and offshoots and hybrids of these two main things. But these are the two main views when it comes to this idea of God choosing or us choosing. Main view number one, and these are not my words. I couldn't put these words together if my life depended on it. First one, he says, God, through his omniscience, his all-knowing nature, God knows those who in the course of time will choose choose of their own free will to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. On the basis of this divine foreknowledge, God elects these individuals before the foundation of the world. So basically, God knows ahead of time, and he's not necessarily making the choice for you, but he knows way ahead of time, he's cool with it, he puts his blessing on those those events, and so it's like he's choosing, but he's not choosing. Okay, So that's main view number one. God simply knows what's going to happen, allows it to unfold, and because of his foreknowledge, it's kind of like he's choosing, but he's not choosing. Second main view. This one would say that God not only chooses those who will have faith in Christ, but he also chooses to give them the faith to believe in Jesus Christ. In other words, God's election isn't based on a foreknowledge of person's choice. It's based on the unearned sovereign grace of Almighty God. So basically, God, in the perfect sovereignty of his plan, is making the choice for you, not you making the choice. This gets kind of difficult, right? Some of you guys wrestling with the idea of either of these maybe being true. Here's the reality. The truth is a combination of both main views. But, here's, but when it comes to this idea of election and predestination, beyond what Peter says here, there's, there's verses that support this idea that it's God doing the choosing. It's, it's tough to wrestle with, 
but it's important to wrestle with, not, not because your life depends on it, but because it's good to sharpen yourself and, and dig through some of these things. So back to Romans. We're going to go to Romans chapter 8, uh, 29 and 30. And it says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now when we see these words, foreknew and predestined and chosen, they all mean exactly what they sound like, right? There's not some hidden, uh, you know, different meaning that lost in translation. When it says predestined, it means predestined. When it means chosen, it means chosen. When it says knew beforehand, it means knew beforehand. They were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. We'll jump back to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, 4 to 6. says, He, God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Let's go back to uh, 1 Peter, where we kicked off the series a couple months ago. He launches that letter and says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, written to God's elect, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so you take all these verses and you add in John 6, where Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father himself draws them. So these verses, we go, man, this is God doing his thing, right? We're just kind of puppets or pawns or, or, or chess pieces just kind of being moved around. This is, this is how it works. But then add in Romans 1.20, and God says, hey, because of the way I've revealed myself, because of what I've done in creation, because of what you can see about me throughout history, people who choose to reject him are without excuse. And so you take some of these verses that make it sound like, God's choosing, it's his will, we're just getting moved around, he's doing what he needs to do. But then you can add in verses, it goes, you got to choose, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, right? All these things, God doesn't desire that anyone would perish. So you, you take these things together and it's a difficult tension to wrestle with, and yet it's important to wrestle with. It's hard to wrap your mind, some might seem unfair depending on where you land on it, because all of a sudden you have a situation where you have to choose God, but in order to choose God, he has to choose you first and draw you to himself. He has to soften your heart, open your eyes to the truth, and you have to choose God, but he has to choose for you to choose him. <laughs> That's how it kind of feels walking away from some of these verses. The truth is, like I said, it's a tension. It's both and. There are both ands in Scripture, and it's tough for us to wrap our brains around it. Some of it is the beauty of following a God who can't be placed in a box and defined and figured out, and yet there are both ands. Like, prayer works, but God is in control and has a plan. God does the work of salvation, but he asked his people to tell people about Jesus and be involved in the process. You have to choose and believe and accept and repent, but God has chosen and decided and knows ahead of time. It's a tough one. Just because it's beyond our comprehension doesn't make it less true. So all that builds kind of towards this because remember he said, so you've been called, you've been chosen, you've been gifted this salvation thing, you've, you're a part of the elect. Why would you need to confirm it? 
If God is that intimately involved in the process and has chosen you and chosen for you to choose him and softened your heart and drawn you to himself, why do you need to confirm it? Why does goodness play such a big role in this? Why does knowledge and self-control need to be added to this process? Where, where does perseverance and godliness and mutual affection play into this idea of being chosen and experiencing salvation that is set? Well, a couple things, okay? For, a couple things that it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you have to earn it. Okay, let's clarify that right now. It doesn't mean that you have to earn this choosing, earn this salvation. It's not, hey, the reward is yours for the taking. You just have to answer these three riddles and figure it out. You you don't have to compete against anyone. It's not going to be stolen from you. You You don't have to measure up against another person. You don't have to earn it. And it doesn't mean prove it. This isn't God saying pictures or it didn't happen. This isn't God saying, I'm a little bit skeptical, right? I've heard you say the words. I can actually see your heart. But until you do X, Y, and Z, I'm not sure that you really believe in me. I'm not sure you really love me. That's, that's not what that means. And I ought to be honest, I'm not even sure in the process of laying out the NIV translation, I'm not sure why they chose the word confirm, because the word actually means make it sure, make it stable, make it steadfast, make it a force, make it unshaken, make it trustworthy. So it's not saying confirm your calling and election, it's saying Make your faith unshaken. Make your salvation a force. Make it steady. Make it steadfast. Make it sure. There's an element of us living it out that has to play in to what we've experienced. I want to jump to the book of James. James chapter 2, and he gets right into this, in this idea of this balance between God choosing and us experiencing salvation and us living it out, confirming it, making it steadfast, making it useful. James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Look at verse 21 and 22. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. It's basically talking about two different kinds of faith. Now, not the two different kinds you're thinking, because remember, he's talking to believers in this passage, and Peter is talking to believers in his letter. So this isn't a question of a saving faith and a non-saving faith. This isn't a matter of this faith gets you to heaven and this faith doesn't, because he's talking to people who are in. They believe in Jesus. They are doing their best to follow. They're trying to figure this out. So we're talking about two different kinds of faith where when it comes to living faith or dead faith, or maybe better said, active faith versus an inactive faith. Remember calculus. We're coming back around, right? I'm someone who would say that your saving faith, the faith that, for, that, that uh, accepts God's offer of forgiveness of sins and new life and eternity with him, that saving faith can also be a dead, inactive faith. You can believe in Jesus and be on your way to heaven, but still choose to live a mess here on this planet. And so faith, as James is saying, faith, apart from application, is useless. Maybe not useless for salvation, useless for life. 
No value for your marriage. No value for your kids. No value towards your work ethic. No value in impacting people unless it's applied. So in this life, here on this planet, the only thing that gives your faith value is your willingness to apply what you believe. That's God working in us. That is the means by which he's chosen to transform us, the application of our faith. It's the application that preserves and restores and heals and impacts. If you don't apply it, it's worthless on this side of heaven. Maybe faith enough to get you to heaven. Remember the thief on the cross who died next to Jesus. That guy's faith didn't do anything for his family. His life was over. That guy's faith didn't do anything to transform his finances and his stewardship of the resources God gave. That guy's faith didn't do anything for his marriage or anything. No practical application. There was no time. He had just enough time to recognize that this guy was who he said he was and was accomplishing what he set out to accomplish. And he said, okay, you know what? In spite of everything you're leaving behind, you'll be with me today in paradise. He experienced a saving faith, an eternity-altering faith, and yet didn't have time for it to be practically applied in his everyday life. So you might have faith enough to get you to heaven, but maybe not enough to transform or impact your life here on earth. Maybe a faith that would be described as weak or unstable or easily shaken, maybe boring, maybe uninspiring, maybe useless. And so he says, confirm your calling, confirm your election, confirm what you've experienced in Christ, make it sure Make it stable. Make it a force. Make it unshaken. And Peter's basically saying, hey, God's given you everything that you need. You have divine power at your disposal in order to grow and mature in your faith. Now you need to pursue it actively. Pursue maturity. Pursue that relationship. Because if not, what's the point? No stability. No reliability. No impact. Congratulations, you're going to heaven. That's something that we should celebrate. But here on earth... What's the point? So I want to end with a couple questions. First one is this. Are you spiritually alive? Do you know Jesus? Have you crossed that point in your life where you have expressed belief and understanding and and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins? Have you experienced new life? Are you sure? Right, Because as we think back on a useless faith, if you find that it's weak, and boring, and easily shaken, and unreliable, and having no impact, if it's all of those things, and none of the positive fruits that Peter described earlier, seems like you have to ask the question, is this even real? Don't gloss over that question. Take some time this afternoon. Take some time this weekend just to ponder. And I'm not trying to churn up and make you question your faith. For those of you who have been walking with Jesus for years, right? I'm just trying to say there are people who attend church faithfully their entire lives that never come to the point where they actually stop and recognize, hey, this is more than just a Sunday morning habit. This has to be my heart. This has to be my life. Are you spiritually alive? And then kind of keeping with the theme of where we've been today, kind of a two-part question. 2A, are you actively pursuing growth and maturity? Remember, everything that you need is available to you. And Peter says, make every effort. So now add whatever you need to add. Cut whatever you need to cut. Pursue relationships, end relationships. Enhance your schedule. Pare down your schedule. Read more and different content. Eliminate some content. Why? Because some of you are going to heaven. 
You've been chosen. You've been forgiven and free. You've been saved from your trespasses and sins. Some of you are going to heaven, but you would never know it by looking at you. You'd never know it by talking to you. Are you actively pursuing growth and maturity? And that brings us to question 2B. Is your faith in Jesus actually useful in this life? Remember calculus? Remember trig? Remember the periodic table? Romine's easy. It's BR. Got my pass, right? I passed the test. I made it. Got credit. It's in my transcript. Congratulations. You got your diploma. No one can take that away from you. Who cares? In your faith, are you seeing goodness? Are you craving knowledge? Are you showing self-control in tough spots? Are you persevering through difficulty? Are you living a godly life in a world that wouldn't know godly if it hit him on the head? Are you showing mutual affection and love for brothers and sisters and your enemies? Would your soul-saving faith have any impact on anyone else's soul? Maybe you need to go back and do a deep dive into the book of James. Extremely practical, right? He's saying, this is, what it, this is how you handle difficult times as a believer. This is what it looks like to love people who are different from you. This is what it looks like to love widows and orphans. This is what it looks like for the things coming out of your mouth as a believer, right? This is what it looks like to pray as a believer. Maybe you need to go back to 1 Peter, the book we started with a few weeks ago, as he describes, hey, salvation, yes, awesome, eternity secure. Remember the big long rope that we threw out? Eternity is set, but what about now? Like, what, what does it look like to interact with government as someone who's following Jesus? What does it look like to interact as a husband or wife? What does it look like to, to experience difficult circumstances as a believer? Go back and see what is, this, what is a useful faith look like because the other very important key element of election of being chosen is that you are blessed to be a blessing you can go back to abraham and the story of israel where they're chosen they're set apart to bring god's blessing the story of his salvation to the world throughout biblical history god is forever choosing people or groups of people setting them apart raising them up blessing them electing them to experience his blessing and to be a blessing to others, and to be the vehicle through which that blessing is delivered to others. It's all possible. It's all available. But it's only possible here on this planet if you're doing it on purpose. Let's pray. Father, thanks for our time this morning. Thanks for those crazy kids on the other side of that wall and, and the fun that they're having. I know they, they've been learning and challenged over there as well. And, uh, but God, here in this room, as we just... Ponder this challenge. Ponder this encouragement. God, first, thanks for salvation. Thanks for that free gift. Whatever combination it is between you choosing us and us choosing you, however that plays out in the spiritual realm, God, thank you for softening our hearts, revealing that truth to us so that we can experience it. And yet, God, we recognize that it's not supposed to be a momentary experience. It's supposed to be something that transforms our lives from the inside out and overflows as goodness and godliness and patience and all the things that come from a life that's being lived in the Spirit. And so we ask for that, God. Give us the ability to, as David prayed, Lord, search our hearts. Reveal things to us that need to be messed with or cleaned up, steps that we need to take, things we need to evaluate. 
And may we come out the other side with a living, active, impacting, useful faith that can not only impact our lives, but the lives of the people that we love. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Have a great afternoon.